cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with me, Kingsley Kipuri, on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Fantastic to be in the studio again. Firstly, apologies for the misfire last week. You may notice that we did not have a podcast up. We did do some recording, but we, we had some technical issues that made the, the actual listening experience quite painful to the ear, and we decided not to podcast that. Apologies for anyone who, who sort of tuned in live and had some issues with that. But we're back in studio. A massive thank you to Palessa and Greg on the technical side of Cliff Central for making sure that we're good to go this week. Now to jump right in. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at matters continental, looking at Chad, looking at Zambia, looking at Uganda. So I'll give you a quick run through of what to expect. Firstly, we'll be talking about something that's playing out in Uganda where prominent activist Stella Nyanzi has been arrested for insulting remarks she made against the president and we'll be speaking a bit about that and what seems to be quite sort of anti-democratic, anti-freedom of speech sort of regime uh, actions in Uganda. Uh, secondly, we'll speak a bit about uh, the extraordinary African Chambers so court in Senegal that's made a massive judgment on an appeal against a former Chadian president, Hissène Habre, and we'll be speaking to Amnesty International a bit about that in a second. And lastly, we'll be speaking to Simon Allen who you'll remember as a sort of frequent guest on here um, And we'll be speaking to him about uh, what's happening in Zambia Between the president, Mr. Edgar Lungu And the opposition leader, Hakainde Hichilema And what's also being seen as very anti-democratic So I suppose a very sort of depressing show For those interested in democracy and governance and so on For those tuning in, so basically just to give a quick background of what's happened We had a hybrid court That's the extraordinary African chambers That was actually set up in Senegal, not Chad Um and and what that court did was sort of a set up hybrid court that was set up to prosecute former Chadian president who who was reigning from or was the president from 1982 to 1990 and and was 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 charged with with war crimes crimes against humanity and torture with a sentence of life was life imprisonment now this is absolutely massive because this is a former head of state, right? And you have a hybrid court set up. So you can imagine how sort of important that is for people who are sort of watching, you know, democracy and governance issues across the continent. So that was set up and last year in May um, was found guilty of those charges. So there was an appeal process where the former president, he uh, sort of appealed and said, no, this is, you know, should not be how it should be. Um, and from that, the, 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 the extraordinary African Chambers Court sort of upheld its ruling and continued with that. So I'd say, I mean, why is this so important? Why is this something we're watching? I'd say, firstly, the the idea that a, a special court and a hybrid court was set up in a different country other than the country where the actions were committed. I think that's massive. These were committed in Chad. This was done in Senegal. So the, what this means, if you have an Omar al-Bashir or, a, you know, an Kurunziza or somebody who's being... And those are, you know, Sudan and Rwanda. If you have somebody in a specific country, even if they're head of state and they are found sort of uh, answerable for issues around crimes against humanity, even after they're no longer president, that means other countries can step in and say, we are going to set up this special hybrid situation and and charge you. And that's absolutely massive because we, we've seen the shortcomings of, of people in their own countries or, or rather judicial systems in specific countries being able to hold former heads of state accountable for their actions. I mean, 
um, or even current heads of state. I mean, you'll remember Kenya after the post-election violence when, when former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan stepped in and the first, the first step was to say, okay, you know, Chief Justice in Kenya and local courts, you have X amount of time to build a case, to form a case, because ideally you want these things to be handled internally. And they were just not, not able to do it. It's very difficult in terms of political will and conflicts of interest for existing judicial systems, some people who are elected by the same president, to to act against the same person or the former person. So I'd say the fact that this is being done in another country is absolutely massive. Secondly, is it answers a big issue that we've we've had about the ICC. Um, you'll remember, or you'll recall, if you've been listening to the show, that the International Criminal Court has come under a lot of fire, a lot of fire continentally. Number one, it's very resource intensive. It costs, it costs hundreds of million dollars, of millions of dollars to run. And we've only had, you know, one or two prosecutions. Um, secondly, is there's this whole idea or this element that it's anti-Africa or it's racist. I mean, this has been discussed a lot of times. This idea that only Africans are, are charged and only African presidents and only African former heads of state are charged. And I, th- I believe what this does, this idea that you can set up a hybrid court with other countries locally, is it, 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 it removes that whole stumbling block of the ICC set up by, by foreign powers. And, and it, it allows us to be able to jump, to jump that whole legal issue of saying, oh, but it's, ICC is funded by foreign powers. It's another form of colonialism. We can avoid that altogether. Between the African Union and local, and local countries and local courts, we can, we can go around all that and, and simply set up our own courts. I mean, of course, there are a lot of legal obstacles and, and, and there's no region, region, pol- regional politics at play. Are, are neighboring countries, are other countries willing to get involved? Uh, is there the, the money and the political will at the African Union level to want to get involved? So there are numerous other questions, but I think this is an extremely, extremely important precedent. We won't be able to speak to, to Gaetan from Amnesty. We'll move to, to Simon Allison, who will try and get on Skype. I think Palessa's working on it. if we can just switch Simon Allison to Skype, not telephone. Um, but just, I think it's just really important to hit home of just how important this is. The idea that an extraordinary African Chambers Court can be set up in a different country, that's Senegal, not Chad, to try a former head of state. Right? Somebody who was in power for eight years, who was accused of killing and torturing, you know, tens of thousands of people, um, accused of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and torture, um, and can be sentenced to life by this special court. Um, he can appeal and that can be, and that can be held up. I think that's absolutely massive. And I, and I, I'd, I'd love to, and we'll be, we'll be speaking to Simon shortly and I'm sure he'd, he'd have some to say or something to say on this. Um, it will be really interesting if we could find out what this means for people like Omar al-Bashir, for people like, uh, Pierre Kurunziza, um, for people even like President Moy of Kenya and former, maybe even apartheid presidents. It'd be really interesting, um, to see what happens and how we can, Go back into crimes previously committed um, to say, hey, these things can still be brought up. Next, we're going to be chatting to Simon Allison via Skype very shortly about what's happening in Zambia. So we have former President Edgar Lungu. And, and after an election last year that he's declaring as having won, there was massive, massive, massive allegations that that was not a free and fair election. Um, and I believe we have Simon Allison on the line. Simon, can you hear us? 
I'm with you, Kingsley. Okay, wonderful. Simon, you know, in some movements and collections, deserters are at risk of being threatened to death. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that we are still on speaking terms. I suppose Daily Maverick is more civilized than those other movements, I suppose. That is, is fighting talk, but I like to believe we, we're all part of the same broader movement, fighting for the same things. Absolutely. For those tuning in who don't know what we're talking about, Simon has started a fantastic new job as Africa editor at Mail and Guardian. So I suppose we're rivals now, but also friends. Simon, congratulations and thanks for still making time for us. Thanks, Kingsley. I've always got time for you. Okay, fantastic. You know that. Now to get started, a country we don't talk too much about on the show is Zambia. Um, generally assumed uh, to be quietly chugging along a model for governance and democracy, but some really, really worrying you know, stories and news coming out of there. A lot of them actually, I believe, pushed by you. So, Simon, how have we gotten to a point where the president has orchestrated it such that the opposition leader is being charged with treason? How on earth did we get here? You know, it's it's always a good sign when a country is not talked about on the Daily Maverick show. Oh, these yeah. things are going well. Oh, yeah. um, but Zambia has been exhibiting dangerous signs for a while now, ever since um, the last election, which mm. was very much disputed between um, the ruling party that, that won it and um, Hakainde Hichilema's party, the, the main opposition leader. Hichilema still says that um, that election was not fair. And look, what we do know is we do know that there were problems that there were problems with that election. We don't know what the impact of those problems would have been. So it's impossible to say um, that uh, Hichilema would have won in a free and fair mm. election. But we mm. do know that there were problems. Now, fast forward a few months, um, and Hichilema is in his house in the middle of the night, and suddenly this huge team of, of police, the, the estimates range from about 100 to 300 policemen, all wearing balaclavas, which is a very strange operating procedure, um, storm into his house, bang down the door, he retreats into a safe room, um, they throw toxic, um, some kind of tear gas um, into the house, trying to almost smoke him out. Um, they apparently, allegedly, um, torture and, and assault some of the, the, the workers mm. um, that lived on the property. Um, him and his family managed to get into this, this special safe room. Um, I actually spoke to them while they were, I spoke to uh, Mr. Hichilema while he was in the safe room, and I've never heard a man sound more terrified on the phone. Um, I think he really thought that they were coming to kill him that night. Um, eventually, you know, in the morning, his lawyers managed to come to the property. Mm. They made a deal with the police. They coaxed him out of the safe room. He's now sitting in jail in Lusaka on these, frankly, ridiculous treason charges. Mm. He is being accused of um, according himself the status of the president by impeding the president's motorcade at a cultural ceremony. Um, and this really is a traffic incident between, you know, the opposition leader's convoy of vehicles and the president's official convoy of, of, of vehicles. You know, they were trying to share the same space of road mm. and it got a little bit me bit messy. The president had to wait a while. Um, the president seemingly is so incensed by this that uh, he thinks it's a crime against the country. I mean, that sounds like, this sounds like a very, how we say, vulnerable person who would take something like, you know, you decide was a traffic incident, um, and, and take this that seriously. Is this, is this a, is this a president who's, who's perhaps terrified that after the disputed election that, he, you know, that his, his, his position is at risk in any way? 
Kingsley, that's spot on. I, I was in Lusaka last week and I spoke to a lot of mm. activists and politicians and civil society people and two adjectives kept coming up um, when they were speaking about the president. The first adjective was insecure. Mm. The guy knows that his election victory was not above board. He knows that there is a chance that the opposition is actually more popular than him. Um, and this is driving a lot of his paranoia mm. and a lot of his actions against civil society, against media, and against opposition parties. Because, of course, it's not just about um, Hakainde Hichilema himself. Mm. It's a much more wider um, attack on political space mm. and freedom of expression. Mm. The second adjective, um, which I, I enjoyed, was uh, incompetent. <laughs> Um, he, the, the, the sort of prevailing view was was he's not very good at um, his, at, at, at being a, a would be dictator, you know. And this treason charge is a great example, you know. I'm sure with a little bit of thought, um, the president and his lawyers could have come up with mm. something vaguely believable um, that they could use to to charge Hichilema with. But this traffic incident, this 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 battle of the motorcades, is just so absurd. That it makes the whole thing um, so blatantly, obviously a political ploy, um, and, and we can all see through that. And, and that is also mirrored in, in, in you know, other ways in, in which he's trying to, to control civil society. You know, unlike Zimbabwe, which, which has been doing this for decades, Zimbabwe has one of the best intelligence organizations on the continent, if not the world. Zambia doesn't. Um, they don't have the the spooks you need to run a dictatorship. They don't have the kind of um, intense security forces you need to run a dictatorship. So as much as um, people are worried about Zambia backsliding, um, they also don't think that uh, President Lungu has the, uh, has the competence to, to pull it off. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure whether it's an insult or it's sort of a great relief <laughs> that we have somebody who's not competent enough to be a real dictator. Um, I mean, Simon, so what happens now? Because I, I believe there's no bail on treason charges. So Mr. Chilema is still in jail. And I, I also assume elections wouldn't be for another four or five years. So, you know, do we continue with a insecure president who's who i assume will continue to 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 impede any opposition and media freedoms and so on and and an, an opposition leaders who are in danger of being thrown in jail without bail at any time look there is a lot of talk in lusaka about how now is the time for more active resistance mm -hmm. um and I've even heard, you know, in, in very whispered conversations um, about the possibility of some kind of armed resistance. I think that this is a, a, a huge over-dramatization mm. of the situation. You know, we're not nearly at the point of, of civil war yet. There's a long road um, still to be gone down in terms of legal challenges, in terms of electoral challenges, um, and in terms of, of possibly even parliamentary challenges. You know, we... There are a lot of avenues that Zambia still has to explore in terms of preventing President Lungu um, from going down the authoritarian path, if that indeed is where he wants to go. Mm. Um, so I think that what we are going to see is, is a lot more contentious politics in Zambia, um, a, a lot of stuff going through the courts backwards and forwards, um, a lot of outrage statements from various people. But really, the, the crunch time is going to be the next election, and, and that's what the opposition will be building towards. And, you know, they may even use Hichilema's arrest as a rallying cry. In mm, fact, they will, certainly. definitely. Yeah. They'll turn him into a, a, a martyr figure, and it might actually help them. Mm.
Mm. Might turn out being great news for the opposition. Now, Simon, uh, bringing South Africa into the fold, um, I think we spoke informally about this, and you say that that sort of our domestic issues here with the ANC and President Zuma and so on have 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 compromised our sort of moral high ground in situations like this uh, across the continent. Could you just speak a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, South Africa has an unparalleled position within Southern Africa. You know, we are the dominant superpower by far. We are the hegemon. Um, we are the economic power as well. Um, you know, our South African businesses are, are, are huge in, in, in almost every Southern African country. Um, we are in a position to exert serious influence in Southern African capitals, and we do. Um, often it's quiet, you know, Tabo Mbeki's famous quiet, quiet diplomacy. Okay. Um, but it, it, it is there. And, and what it sort of does is, is we, 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 all our diplomacy is, is sort of geared towards preserving the status quo because we want, you know, markets to access and, and we want things to remain very stable. Mm-hmm. Any kind of conflict threatens that. Um, and I think that if South Africa were to really get on President Lungo's case about, about what he's been doing recently, mm. there would be a reaction. There would have to be a reaction because South Africa is so important. But South Africa has been silent, deathly silent. We haven't said a word. And I think that that is partly because the president is is, is so, um, you know, he's so distracted by, the president of South Africa is so distracted by his own domestic issues, but partly because those same domestic issues, you know, the allegations of corruption, the, the patronage, um, that, that, that are swirling around President Zuma mm. kind of mean he can't go around criticizing other Southern African presidents for, for trying to do the same thing. Mm. Um, you know, w- w- while I was researching um, the, the treason charge against um, Hichilema, I, I, I suddenly remembered that um, a, a treason charge had been brought against Julius Malema last year by the African National mm. Congress. So, um, you know, in some ways, Zambia is just mirroring the, 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 the tactics used by the ANC here. Um, and, and Simon, what about the African Union? I know this is something I come to a lot. Every time we talk to you, I'm always like, what is the African Union doing on this? Is, there, is, is it necessary? Perhaps it's a domestic issue and it's actually best that you know Zambia as a democracy figures it out? Or is this the kind of incident where, where we expect the AU to either publicly or quietly sort of step in and say, hey, what's going on here? Well, Kingsley, I think you've, you've pretty much answered your own question yes. there. Um, Yes, on the one hand, this is is a domestic incident and the African Union doesn't like to intervene. And that Mm -hmm. is definitely the message that is coming informally out of Addis Ababa, um, informally, because we haven't heard anything official from um, the African Union, not from its new um, chairperson, Musa Faki, not from the Peace and Security Council Commission. Um, On the other hand, the African Union preaches this doctrine of early warning, of conflict prevention, of, of, of stopping situations from spiraling out of control before they spiral out of control. And I think Zambia is, is a perfect yeah. example of, of where you want them to be more active. Now, mm. I don't think Zambia is going to spiral out of control and turn into civil war. But you know what? We don't know for sure. And yeah. there are lots of very ominous mutterings mm. coming from people. Surely this is where the African Union should be stepping in and saying, hey, Zambia, um, you are violating democratic norms. You're violating continental norms, the policies we have established, um, and, and, and you know some kind of rap on the knuckles. But nothing has been forthcoming. And this sort of combination of, of silence from the African Union, mm. silence from South Africa, mm. um, silence, silence from the rest of the continent 
can only encourage President Lungu. He's, you know, he's taken a step over the democratic line. Mm. He's, he's dipping his toes in the waters of authoritarianism. Um, and he's finding that those waters are actually quite friendly. There's no backlash whatsoever. Incredibly, incredibly worrying. Um, Simon, before I let you go, I want to take you to West Africa. And I say this completely owning that we didn't prepare to talk about this at all. <laughs> so to give you some context, we were speaking a bit about um, the extraordinary African Chambers uh, Court in Senegal that, that, that upheld their judgment on former Chadian President Hissène Habre and was supposed to speak to someone from Amnesty International who we weren't able to reach in the end. Um, so I gave a really, you know, I'm sure shallow and poor monologue about that. And, and... And I am incredibly excited about this idea of hybrid courts and 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 solving matters regionally and continentally. And I'm and I'm sure I left the other piece of the puzzle out, which is why this is difficult and perhaps is not going to keep happening anytime we have challenges like this. Um, are you able to say anything about about you know hybrid courts like the one we just saw coming out of West Africa and whether that could perhaps be the solution to some of the issues we've had in the ICC across the continent? Look, the hybrid court um, in Senegal that tried Hubber was a massive success. Um, it really was a fantastic example of, of how these things can work. But let's not forget mm. how difficult it was to achieve this success. Mm. You know, Hubber lived in Senegal for, I mean, I think it was more than two decades, pretty much untouched, um, having a lovely life in a beautiful villa on the seaside before um, anyone could get to him. It really took an incredibly concerted effort from international civil society and particularly um, Human Rights Watch. I think it was Human Rights Watch. Reed Brody, um, a researcher for Human Rights Watch, really tenaciously pursued this. He got victims groups together. He collected evidence, um, you know, and, and, and so it was a really difficult, long, drawn-out process that may or may not have worked. Um, at any point in the process, there were these obstacles um, to overcome. And look, the only reason why it did work in the end is mm. because there was a huge political change in Senegal itself when um, Abdullah Wade, the president, was unseated um, in a really surprising election by Macky Sall, who was much more progressive than Wade was. So, you know, the, the hybrid court, while being a good idea, is so precarious um, it, 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 it relies on a whole bunch of things mm -hmm. going according to plan and, and, and not being messed up. There's no certainty that, that it will work. And I think that's what the, the ICC was trying to bring, was mm. kind of trying to formalize yeah. this process under one roof and, and make it reliable. Because, you know, justice, to be justice, you, you need to know it's there. Yeah. You can't just maybe have justice, maybe not, depending mm. on various sets of circumstances. You need to know that if you do commit the crime, yeah. there is something that is going to come after you. And I think that was really the, the foundation of the ICC, was that we can't just do this ad hoc anymore. But having said that, given mm. all the problems um, that the ICC has been experiencing in Africa, yeah. um, hybrid courts are, are our next best solution. Um, there isn't going to be an African version of the ICC anytime soon, so the, the sort of African Court on People and Human Rights. That's just a pie in the sky, not going to happen for, for various reasons that we can talk about later. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of left with hybrid courts as, as, as plan B, and it's a decent plan B. Simon, that was fantastic. I should have just called you, you know, an hour ago and just gone through all of that. <laughs> Simon, thank you so much. Thanks for chatting to us, and I'm sure we'll keep coming to you long into the future. Thanks, King. Okay. Please do. I, I don't want to be uh, excommunicated now. I'm on the other team. I mean, we only lasted one day in our efforts to sort of, what's the what's the word, to ignore you and, <laughs> and blacklist you. So clearly, you know, not going to happen.
Wonderful. Thanks for chatting to us, man. Cheers. Always a pleasure. Okay. Uh, for those tuning in, that's Simon Allison, who's the Africa editor at the Mail and Guardian now, former Dale and Maverick uh, journalist. Um, so please make sure to grab the Mail and Guardian too and, you know, and, and follow some of the important work they're doing. Not in place of us, of course, but together with, um, we can be, you know, competitors and friends all at the same time. Um, that was really great to get some more context on, on the, on the, on the court that I was so excited about. The, 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 the hybrid court that came out of Senegal and whether, and the, the exciting opportunities that presents, um, for the rest of the continent, as well as the, as the challenges. You don't want to have a crime committed and then have to have, you know, a perfect alignment of, of political actors and then only then do you have sort of a court in place to, to, to step in. Okay, now now turning to another part of the continent, um, we've 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 covered Sadak in West, and now looking towards the East, I uh, will be talking a bit about somebody called Stella Nyanzi, who's an activist who comes out of Af- uh, East African country of Uganda, who's been arrested um, on 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 charges that we'll dip into just now, and and it's 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 really a, a sort of an interesting entry point uh, to look at matters of gender, matters of sort of public intellectualism in Uganda, matters of freedom of speech. Uh, in the scope of a uh, of a over thirty year reign of of one president, you were in Museveni. So we'll be speaking to Bosige Bwamesigire, who's a writer, an academic, and a lawyer. Uh, Bosige, we should have you on the line now. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Bosige. Now to just jump right in, we've been hearing a lot about this person called Stella Nyanzi and why this person has now captured the. The, uh, the attention of, of the Ugandan state and, and is, and is now in prison. And I'd love you to just give us some background. Who is Stella Nyanzi and why was this person arrested? Uh, so Stella is a PhD scholar and she's working with Gary Institute of Social Research. So the first time she, um, the first time people started learning of her was, uh, last year when she was protesting the closure of her office by Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, who is more famous. Um, so she protested by undressing up to her knickers uh, to put attention to the fact that she was being oppressed at her workplace. And since then, she was suspended at the university for her protest, and she started uh, critiquing the Museveni regime on mm-hmm. Facebook mm-hmm. using um, particularly erotic um, images, um, one of them saying that the president was sodomizing Uganda and they don't, which attracted a lot of attention, uh, but also a lot of criticism mm. from this largely conservative mm. society. Um, and so recently, early this year, um, Museveni gave a speech uh, to celebrate uh, the end of the 31st year of his rebel army taking power in Kampala and in that speech he said that he's not a servant of anybody um, and then in reaction to that speech Stella Nyanzi wrote that or what the president was saying was nonsense that the language he was saying was speaking is a language of buttocks so he's, he's a pair of buttocks okay. um, then after that that didn't attract um, at, at least we didn't see immediate attention mm. After that, uh, the president's wife, who is also the minister of education, announced that uh, the government was not going to provide sanitary pads anymore, which was an electoral promise mm. that was made um, in 2015. 
And then Stella again commented on that, uh, saying that uh, the, f- the first lady, which is a title that we use for the president's wife, mm-hmm. but she just said the wife of the president, or the minister of education, is not uh, Stella's mother, is not a mother to anyone if she doesn't feel the pain of young girls who feel embarrassed um, and sometimes don't go to school during their menstruation mm. because they don't have sanitary pads. Mm. And this is a promise they had made. Um, and that attracted attention, at least publicly, from the police, uh, from the security services and Stella. Following that comment, Stella was invited to the police. She was stopped from traveling outside the country and she was eventually abducted. And then when she was presented in court, she was charged with um, offending the president under the Computer Misuse Act. And um, she has, and then the state made an application for her to be taken for a mental health examination to ascertain if she's of sound mind. And so the defense couldn't ask for bail until this application is disposed of. And that's where we are now. It's, it's almost a month since she was taken into prison. Oh, now, Basiki, I mean, a lot of this, I mean, you know, forgive me, perhaps the international perspective that makes it, you know, sound less, but a lot of this sounds uneventful. Like, you know, I could go on and, and, and call the president whatever I wanted. Why Why does one person going on Facebook and saying, despite the colorful language, insulting the president, why Why? Why would that cat, catch the attention of the president? Why is that worth a Because our sentence? president, um, yeah. as I've said, our president has been in power for the last 31 years. Mm. So the the levels of power that he holds mm. are, are different. So there is People like me, I was born in 1987, yeah. and this man took power in 1986. Yeah. So he's not just a president. He's more than a president. And he's, so there is this invisibility about him. Mm. So when someone um, reduces him to a human being mm-hmm. and says, you're a pair of buttocks, yeah. because the level of fear in the country is so much mm. that even before the state picked interest or the state showed that it had picked interest, People were worried for Stella. Yeah. So people were saying, oh, we're collecting money for bail mm. because that's the level of repression in the country mm. that you have a dictator, basically. Someone who's been in power for so long and someone who behaves as if he's beyond the law because the law is him and he is the law. And so you can't insult him. So what other people might think this is normal, um, and I've seen um, in South Africa, for example, people using... Um, colorful language yeah. to talk about President Zuma. Yeah. But in Uganda, because one, there is the fact that this is a conservative society, but also the fact that this man has dominated our life, whether political, social, cultural, even religious life. Mm. Now, uh, well, Sigi, when, when, I, when I look at this, you know, a lot of people, I suppose it's easy to dismiss as, you know, somebody just, you know, perhaps out of rage. Um, you know, you know, using the buttocks and even, you know, previously stripping naked at her, at her, in her activism at the university. But some people yes. have written that there's actually precedent for this in the form of something called radical rudeness. Um, yes. could you speak yes. about a bit about what this, this idea or ideology is and, and, and some of its history of use in Uganda? Um, so in the 1940s, um, when Uganda was still a colony, a protectorate of the, of the British government, mm. Um, there were these, of course, one of the things that the British used was indirect rule. So they used the kingdom, Buganda kingdom, the kingdom after which the country is named, 
uh, and their officials to rule over the country. Um, so the activism, the anti-colonial activism in Uganda was against British officials, but also against uh, native officials who were working on behalf of the British. Mm. And so there was um, these particular activists uh, who were tired of the formal, polite ways in which um, independence was being sought. Mm. So whenever there would be uh, agitation for independence, people would be called in to have dinners and things like that. Mm. And then the agitation would come down. So there were these people who were tired of that nonsense. And so one of these invitations, um, one of the activists responded, and in his 18-page response, detailed um, the vulgarities of colonial leadership. So said, um, you, I should, I'm not going to come because what you've been doing to us is immoral. The, um, colonialism is basically foul. This is not something that um, we're interested in, and these uh, polite behavior that you keep enforcing onto us is not something that is, is, a, is a form of oppression, basically. And these, uh, so these petitions were banned. These letters, these open letters, was writing were banned, and so they used to circulate illegally. So, in a way, language has um, language has been a, a ground for colonial oppression, and of course, even with the post-colonial. Um, Dispensation, mm. the fact that Uganda got independence does not necessarily mean that the society was decolonized. Mm. So to date, uh, to speak in a certain way is still considered um, immoral, yeah. is still considered bad manners. So for a person like Stella Nyanzi to do the things that she's been doing, mm. to call things by their names as opposed to euphemizing them is something that is radical. But also, um, Stella Nyanzi is a twin mother um, which in Luganda has a specific title of Nalongo. And according to Ganda tradition, a twin mother has the prerogative to use um, any language she wants to use. So whereas other normal people who are not twin mothers mm. cannot, for example, say the words that refer to genitals, mm. a twin mother can do that because that's the cultural prerogative they have. And Stella has always referred to the fact that she's a twin mother and she has a right to use this particular language. I mean, I hear you, and I can, I can, I can just imagine in the in a conservative society where you have a you know sort of semi all powerful uh, perceived as invincible dictator, you know, to, mm-hmm. to talk about things like sodomy and, and to describe the person as buttocks. There's a there's a disarming. I can I can feel sort of a, dis, a, a disarming feeling of of, of 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 somebody pretending or idealizing themselves as all powerful, only to be reduced. Uh, by, by something as simple as words. So I, I can definitely see something in there. Uh, mm-hmm. now, Bosiki, just to the next point, uh, this, as you mentioned, started also to do with sanitary pads. Um, it's something yes. Stella's yes. passionate about and the, and the, and the minister in charge of this, who's also the first lady, um, yes. was the person in charge of implementing this and the, the campaign promise has been broken. Uh, it's also yes. been reported that the government has since scrapped attacks on sanitary pads. Um, is that true? One and two, should we see uh-huh. that as a really encouraging sign of, 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 of activism working? Yeah, so what happened is when Stella was invited to come to the police, um, someone on her social media commented that maybe to show them that we are angry as citizens, we should start a campaign to provide the pads since they are not providing the pads anymore. Also, a private so effort to, to, to provide those. Yeah, that's okay. how the campaign started. Okay. So, 
the campaign started by Stella saying, come to the police station with me and come with the pads. And then after that, they started um, getting pads from people. Um, the promise to cut down tax on pads, as Stella had written before she was taken in prison, um, is a lie, basically. Okay. Because one, uh, they're still next month is when the budget will be read and a lot of the things have pretty much been done but two the children the girls that the pads are being distributed to or the girls that need the pads still won't afford the pads mm. so remove um reducing the tax won't make the pads accessible or affordable and and uh, and this has also been part of the campaign that it's not just uh, girls not having pads that are made a certain way it is it's sort of a class oppression right because these are only the poor who cannot afford the pads so and a lot of the statistics show that girls who go to rural schools uh, and urban schools that are located in poor localities do not perform well so there is a gender dimension to it there is also a class dimension to it and of course, Stella is a middle-class woman, but to also raise the consciousness of middle-class Ugandans to say, you have it going well for you, your children can afford this, but there are girls who can't afford this. And this is why we should raise money for these people who can't afford this. And now, again, after Stella was taken in prison, the, the ministry, again, the same woman, Mrs. Museveni then said um, that one, they are not sure of the quality of the parts that are being delivered, and these pads are being bought from shops. So you, you would imagine that the Uganda National Bureau of Standards has already um, stamped mm. approval um, on these pads. But also to say that uh, secondary school um, and primary school administrators should not allow uh, these citizens to distribute the pads. So now the poor girls cannot have pads from government and now the same government is saying they can't have pads from well-wishers, which really goes back to the egocentric nature of this fight, yeah. that here you have people who are drunk on power and do not want to be challenged in any way, even if the poor are going to suffer for it. Just don't challenge them, basically. And absolutely. And, and Basiki, could you just contextualize this for us in the scope of sort of the sort of wider politics in Uganda? Do you see this as potentially being a turning point in terms of 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 either public intellectuals or the wider wider country saying, you know what, this is enough. People are being jailed for no reason. Mm-hmm. The sanitary mm-hmm. pads issues are ne- is a mess. We can't even say things on Facebook. Or do you see this really as just business as usual? It's another person who spoke out, another person in jail, and you know the Museveni sort of dictatorial regime continues as usual. I think it depends on how they will handle it, right? So after arresting Stella Nyanzi, a, a journalist with the National TV, one of the independent television stations, was abducted because she posted a blog that said that um, all of our citizens should rise up. It's, it shouldn't just be a Stellanian's issue because we have so many grievances. And then she was abducted and taken around the city for about six hours and then released the next day. And mm. she had been wound and her hair had been cut. So it is clear that the regime is scared, that people might no longer fear them. Now they have been uh, rendered susceptible to criticism and attack but also 
it depends on um, I think what they're trying to do is to show us that look we're still powerful so we still can take you to prison we still can abduct you we still can harm you physically mm. uh, and so that people can um, continue to fear and last year um, November last year there was a massacre in the western part of the country a massacre committed by the national army um, against um, loyalists to a kingdom mm. so in this district um, the national resistance movement which is the ruling party lost all parliamentary seats they lost all so they lost elections badly and there was that massacre of a hundred people were killed by the national army so there is this crude and very repressive and brutal um, response that we are getting from the state to anyone who dares to critique them I think um, there are only two ways about it. One is that whoever is going to critique them is going to be ready for the results. So this has an, a potential effect of radicalizing dissent because now you know what is coming for you, right? There could be a massacre yeah. or be taken to prison or you could be abducted or you could be shot, right? So now it means that whoever is going to oppose is going to be ready for the worst, mm. which I don't think is something they want because we may have um, uglier situations coming. Or it could mean that people will be scared and nothing will happen. So we don't know where it will go and we are waiting to see. Uh, as of now, um, almost a month since Stella was taken in, We've not seen an uprising, um, but we don't know where it will go. Mm. Um, yeah. And lastly, probably you know, very similar question to the one is: is previously a lot of the sort of violence from the president was targeted at sort of opposition uh, parties, specifically uh, Kiza Besigye, who was often in the news yeah. as a as a as a victim of you know his uh, of, of the of presidential forces based on his opposition to the government. Now you've mm. mentioned a journalist. Now you've mentioned Stella, who's an activist and an academic. Is is could this potentially have the effect of of sort of galvanizing a united opposition from civil society, not opposition politically, but opposition to anti-democratic behavior across perhaps uh, civil society and journalism and and academia? Is that is that something that that's a potential way this could play out, or is it really just up in the air, as you said? Um, that, that's um, true. Um, even before Stella was taken in, one of the things she kept saying is. I'm opposed to the repression, but I'm not necessarily a member of an opposition mm, party. Mm, mm. So previously, politics has been between the opposition and the government, right? And now we're seeing um, that it's not just the opposition, right? And because also because of the politics of the opposition, not everyone who is opposed to the dictatorship is necessarily affiliated with the opposition parties. So you're right that one of the things that is happening is that you have a civil society in the true sense of the word that is rising against uh, Museveni, something that he doesn't know how to deal with, obviously, seeing how he has dealt with the Stella case. Absolutely. Well, Sigi, thanks so much for chatting to us. Um, it's something we'll definitely continue to watch, and, and we hope that there is a way to have a more sort of democratic country without without any form of 
uh, you know, widespread violence or anything of the sort. So thanks so much for breaking this down for us. Thank you for having me. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, that's Bwesige Bwamwesigre. He was a writer, academic, and lawyer. Uh, done some great work out of Uganda. Also did some work at Makerere University where Stella Nyanzi formerly also worked. So really, really great sort of on the ground voice on matters such as this. Unfortunately, that's all we have lined up. Um, thank you so much for chatting to us. Um, we spoke to Bwesige, Bwamwesigire. We spoke to Simon Allison. Um, it's just a mixed bag, really, in terms of, you know, how, you know, how I feel after covering issues like this. You have really great news coming out of Chad and Senegal where a former president can be, can be held accountable for, for really heinous acts and really criminal acts, really. And we still have a long way to go in other areas where we see President uh, Lungu in Zambia and now, you know, Museveni in Uganda. But we, we forge on and really hope that if we continue to shed light on matters of governance and matters of democracy, that, that we can, we can, we can ensure that even where, you know, countries and people fall short, that there's, there's room for civil society, for the media, for governance structures locally and continental to step in and make sure that there's consequences for when people do things like this, for when you kill people, for when you jail people without reason, for when you, when you are anti-democratic and clamping down on media freedoms and so on, that there's consequences. And I think that's really the first step for having sort of a free and more democratic continent. Thank you so much for tuning in um, across the country, across the world. It's a daily Mavic from Cliff Central. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.